Welcome. This is Efrat Tabalovsky from Wire Connects, happy to introduce Candidate, a candid conversation about today's dating life with experienced guests. Our wonderful host this evening is Rabbi Shmuel Ismach, Rabbi of Young Israel of Great Neck and Rebbe in the Stone Based Medrash program at Yeshiva University. This podcast is anonymously sponsored by Eloy Nishmas Chano Chaim Ben Yaakov HaKohen. Hi and welcome to Candidate, a candid conversation about dating and relationships with experts in the field. My name is Shmuel Ismach, Rabbi at the Young Israel of Greenach and a Rebbe at the SBMP program at Yeshiva University. Today, I am joined by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Rabbi Goldberg is the senior rabbi at the Boca Raton Synagogue, an 850-family show in Boca Raton, Florida, and is a well-known writer, podcaster, the host of the Behind the Bima, well-known and very popular podcast and YouTube show. And he, I guess you could say, is the right kind of influencer. Welcome, Rebefram. Thank you. So I got so excited. You said that you host experts. I was curious to see who we were going to be talking to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let me explain why I think you've become the expert. I don't know if that you were a ground zero for this conversation, but as many are probably aware, our podcast is about one particular question. And today what we're going to talk about is the question about questions. We're going to talk about what is appropriate to find out in Shaduchim, how should the questions be phrased, what's appropriate, what has happened over the course of the past, I don't know, years, decades, when it comes to researching Shaduchim. And the reason that I believe you're the expert on this topic is because of an article you really recently wrote for Mishpacha magazine. And the article, I think it was called No Further Questions, and had an interesting cover picture, if I'm not mistaken. And that article garnered a tremendous amount of conversation. Everybody always discusses, you know, I hope to start a conversation about a topic. This really did. So first, let's talk about that article and what conversations that article created. How did you come to write the article? How would you describe the aftermath? of the article, and then we'll get into the topic itself. Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Why You Connects for all the wonderful work it's doing. And my dear colleague and friend, Beismach, thank you. It's always great to spend time together. I write a weekly article. Most weeks, I try to write an article, which actually itself is a fascinating history. It's been going on for many years already. And it began because we have a bulletin the shul puts out a weekly And I wrote something called From the Rabbi's Desk because people, as I'm sure they ask you, would ask me, you know, what does the rabbi do all week? Like, Shabbos, you give your drasha, your shir, what do you do all week? So each week I would write an article and feature something we worked on that week about the Erev or Kashras or or Mikvah or Geras or whatever other topic. And then once I was writing it, I decided, you know, once I'm writing it, it was the age of blogs, I might as well put it online. And then it morphed into writing about broader topics with a bigger appeal to the Jewish people. So I try to write every week. And this was something very much on my mind because as a pulpit rav, we find ourselves getting more and more and more reference questions, which is a great privilege and opportunity and grateful to play whatever role we can in helping the people we love find their basher. But it was increasingly frustrating to me the type of questions that were being asked the amount of questions and the type of questions. So it had been percolating inside me. And one week I decided, you know what, I'm going to write this article. And I write these articles mostly as therapy for myself. I put it out there. Whether people will read it, don't read it. I get it off my chest. I feel better and I move on. And sometimes that's all it is. Nobody notices I got it off my chest and I feel better. And sometimes other people, it resonates and then it generates a conversation and it's very gratifying when it does. So I wrote this article and I posted it as I do on my website each week. And I shared it with my good buddy, Sroli Besser at Mishpacha, the link. And I said, you know, this is what's on my mind. Curious what you think about it. And he wrote back to me, take it down. We would want it for Mishpacha. 
So I took it down and he said to me, you know, here's some ways to rework it, that it would work for us. Not trying to censor or edit any part of it, but more in terms of at the end, we need some more practical, give people an action to-do list, that kind of thing. Not trying to censor in any way. And so I did it. I resent it to him and I was gratified. It would have an even bigger audience because Mishpach would help it get out more. And then he got back to me and he said, you know, they had never apparently yet, all their cover stories were features on the person on the cover. This was the first time it would be an author having a sort of op-ed that the cover would be featuring that opinion piece of the author. And I guess they thought this was a good way to get attention, Shiduchim, and I guess calling the author a monster would also get more attention. So I said, okay, sure, I guess, why not? In fact, I didn't. At first I said to him, you know, because I was always telling him, not me, I said, our shul has tremendous diversity. I'm really proud. It's a beautiful community. I'd love for you to feature the diversity of our community. I think it's very special in many ways. And when he said, well, we're thinking- Are there not enough people moving to Boca these days? <laughs> we always want more. So I said, I don't want this to be the cover to the exclusion of ever featuring Boca. It's not about me or my article. Talk about our community. So he said, yeah, maybe one day we'll get to that. But basically, this is your shot, buddy. So take it or leave it. He was a little nicer than that. So it was a privilege. And I did not see the cover before it was produced or the title of the cover, which they felt. For bad. those who are not Mishpacha readers, I believe the cover had a picture of you prominently and said, a monster of our own making. That's correct. And, and that dangling modifier of monster, it was not clear whether it was talking about whatever was the issue of the article or actually referring to you. So a little bit of humble pie while on the cover. Oh, of it, the it was magazine. great. So the word monster was in like 40 font and the word of our own making was in like six font. So if you gave a quick glance to the cover, all you saw was a picture of me that said a monster. So it was, I tell you the truth, there were other people around me who were disappointed in that. And I was grateful. I said, Baruch Hashem, you know, being on the cover could go to your head. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mamash sent the Rafua, like with the Maka, all in one shot. And uh, like you said, a little humble pie, it was good. I have heard that this is a new question that's been added to the list of Shidduch questions. Have you been ever called monster by a publication? That's like a new thing now. So you've created a new category. So tell us about what was the aftermath? What happened? Did people, did this article resonate? People pro, against? What happened? The article overwhelmingly resonated. There was some resistance from some. And I think part of the challenge of the Shidduch world is that there's an industry, like most worlds, there's an industry connected to it, paid Shanchanam and others. And I'll just say a word, Shanchanam are amazing. Most of them are selfless. It's often thankless work. It is frustrating as anything work, as you and why you connect certainly can identify with. So Shanchanam are amazing. However, some are very entrenched in a system. They're calling the shots of the system and they're designing a system that works for them and not necessarily is what's right or righteous for the people who are meant to be benefiting from the system. So there was some resistance, but it was really, really small. It was really a minority. Overwhelmingly, it was positive. I got emails from parents frustrated by the system who were just so grateful someone gave them a voice and validated their experience and what they've been through and were so appreciative that gave them license not to buy into a system that demands inquisitions and reference questions and pictures and that kind of thing. I got yeshikoachs from all kinds of segments of the Orthodox world because one of the fascinating parts of this phenomenon, I don't know what it's like for you in your shul, but the notion of writing a resume and the question of a picture on the resume and the listing of references on the resume is not just part of the yeshivist right ring world. The more modern world is also now part of that too. Many of the phone calls I return are not 
from a yeshivish element of the community, but modern as well. So the phenomenon is spreading across the community. And that's why I thought it was important to voice this. So overwhelmingly, it was positive. I did meet some people, you know, you get a little face recognition from Mishpacha, it wears off very quickly. But I did meet some people and they were frustrated. They said, okay, great. You raised a lot of the problems. What's next? What's the solution? Where's the follow-up article? Where's the movement? Where's the campaign? What happens next? And there's a lot of work to be done. That's a really good question. So let's dig into the system as you describe it and as you discussed in the article and its problems. And I guess specifically it comes to where resume or profile, whatever you call that piece of paper is, where that begins and at what point should you stop? One might argue, you know, let's say for a professional career, you are supposed to be as elaborate and as detailed as you can be, trying to put together all of the things that you've accomplished, all of your successes on that piece of paper. And at the same time, an employer would want to ask whatever it is that they could find out, uh, particularly any negative information that might exist. So once we are providing this information, it's not sort of Torah Shabal Peh, what do you think is the line where questions become inappropriate? What is that line? So first of all, I think the name itself is terrible. A resume immediately suggests that you're being interviewed do you qualify? Are you a candidate? I'm interviewing you. I'm considering you. It positions someone as yado ala tachtona. It's as if somebody is privileged to be interviewed. The other's doing the interview. So I don't know how we incorporated that whole name resume. And I know it's semantical and it might seem petty and insignificant, but I think in a subtle way, all of this ends up penetrating into the subconscious of the whole movement. So, you know, why can't we call them bios, a biography? Or there's got to be a better name to describe. You know, I still have the scrap of paper. I think I wrote this in the article. I still have the scrap of paper that when I came back from being a Madrid on NCSY Colo one summer, my in-law's close friend, the mother of my close friend, Bobby Feiner, had called me and said, I've got this great girl, Yochevit Brookstein. And I have the scrap of paper where I wrote down like Queens College, Camp Simcha, Mechola. That was it. And I was like, Bobby knows me. She knows her. You think it's good? I trust you. Yeah. Great. Sounds good. What's your number? Happy to follow up. That was the extent of my inquiry and inquisition. So I think the word resume itself is negative. We've got to figure out a better word, a bio or biography, or we've got to come up with a better word. But I think that there are basics. You want to know the basics about somebody. You can learn some level of compatibility by knowing the basics about someone. But there's a point of diminishing returns where you're not going to learn from it. It can only be an obstacle and a detriment. There's a phenomenon now where you list friends as references on resumes, which is absurd. First of all, we don't trust these friends enough that we need references on them when they're dating, but now they're the reference themselves for a friend. And what friend exactly is going to sabotage that friendship by telling them, my roommate, not so neat, not so punctual, not so sensitive, not so empathetic. What roommate is going to be really genuine and honest about the deficiencies of their good friend, of their roommate? Why are we putting in that position that they have to talk about their friend? So we know they're not going to be honest. Are we really going to gain anything from it? We don't even trust them to be mature enough. These are people, and it's a movement where they're getting married this own guy who's a reference for his friend can't even choose who he's going out with. His mom is looking through the references. His mom is setting up the first date. He's just given an address and he's supposed to show up. And then he gets married and his plan, parents plan the whole thing and support him the first couple of years. He has no sense of independence or maturity in his own life, but he's going to be the reference on the friend that you're going to trust for your child's spouse. It's illogical. It's irrational. It makes no sense. I don't know how it seeped into a system, but one of my biggest contentions in the article is it's not working. If you told me that the resumes and the inquisitions and the references and the pictures were filtering out 
and were yielding more efficient results. And the shidduch system was improved and better and more people were getting married in less time and fewer dates and quicker fashion and less frustration, then, you know, I'm wrong. Then great, do it, use it. But it's not happening. There's a shidduch crisis and people, women in particular, are disadvantaged and they're not getting the dates. And the divorce rate in the Frum community, broken engagement rate, are at highs, arguably all-time highs. So the system's not working. So maybe it's time to rethink it. So you're saying that, I mean, a few things, but the point you just made relating to, you would think that all of these questions create more hurdles by which once you've passed all those hurdles, this might be a successful relationship. It's not even true that once you pass all these tests, you're going to necessarily be better at it. Okay, so let's imagine we haven't yet changed the system. I want to talk about more specifics about how we might want to do that or consider that as a possibility. But right now you get a question. And your face, I think this happens to me, this happens to a lot of people, people who are on that, call it resume, biography, profile, whatever you want to call it. And then they get a call and then they get a call and you're asked a question, which is like one of these awkward questions. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was once called years ago about a girl who was a former student of mine. I haven't taught her in years, but you know, okay, I was on the resume because we still had somewhat of a relationship. And the person asked me, does this kid, does this young lady get angry? That was the question. Does this person get angry? So I'm already like, you know, anticipating what's the proper answer here. If I say no, 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 you don't get it. Then she's dispassionate. She doesn't care about anything. You know, nothing matters. And if I say, yes, she does. Okay. She's a Kasanit. You know, what am I going to answer? So quickly I thought, you know, she gets angry kind of like normal people do, you know, really just, you know, plain and normal and, and good and regular to which the follow up was, do you remember anything that got her angry? Remember, I hadn't really spent a lot of time in, in some years. It's like, I don't know what to do. So What do you do when you're faced with some of these questions that you don't not want to answer because it's possibly going to reveal negative information? It's just like you can't answer the question. What do you do? I get a little snippy and a little snarky. Maybe it's inappropriate as a Rav or as any person, but I'm trying to give some subtle or not such subtle feedback when the questions cross the line and the boundary. So I'll often say, particularly it's about a girl, I'll say, I've never been on a date with her. I'm not her roommate. I've never lived with her. How could you possibly expect me to answer that question? So I can give you some lip service. I can answer just to make you feel good. You checked off a box or you've checked off your list of questions, but I can't genuinely answer that question when they're asking me, you know, a question like you just described. Does she ever get angry? Does he ever get angry? Moshe Rabbeinu got angry, at least according to the Rambam when he hit the rock. Like, you know, is there a human being who's never gotten angry? There are absurd questions and levels of questions, and they're often questions that violate people's privacy and confidence. So, right, one of my points in the article, the one that got, again, nothing got a lot of pushback, but this got the most of any, was about the question of medicine. What medicines are they on, right? You get that question. So I'll say to people- Allegra, (laughs) you know, particularly in the spring when things were rough, yeah. Exactly. I'll say to them, you know, I've never actually been through their medicine cabinet, but I can try to break into their house if you like, and or maybe at the pharmacy. I can find out what they order and have to pick up. So the medicine question, it is a sensitive question. If there's a person with a diagnosed significant illness, such that, and halacha addresses these questions. We're not the first generation. Chavetz Chaim and earlier, there are tshuvas that address these questions. What rises to the level that needs to be transparency, needs to be shared? And at what point should it be shared? Someone is bipolar, schizophrenia, ADHD, anxiety. You know, what level of anxiety it, we're getting to a point that ain't bias, asher, ain't sham anxiety coming out of Corona that's not being treated, doesn't need help. So, you know, at what level of an anxiety is it debilitating? Is it mild? Is it, you know, and it should it be disqualifying? Is that disqualifying? Who's going to be left? And there are people with a mild anxiety or ADD 
who make the most amazing spouses and parents. And there are the Mitsuyanim, whose medicine cabinets are clean, who've never seen help or therapists, not because they didn't need it, but because the parents, since they were in diapers, were planning for the shidduch resume and questions. And they make horrific parents and horrific spouses. So what service are we doing? But here's the kicker that I only found out afterwards or I would have included it in the article. I actually saw it in a letter that followed up the article. And I'm proud, apparently, the article holds the record so far in Mishpach about the most issues with follow-up letters in a row. One of the letters pointed out that in the yeshivish world, when you speak to Rashi Yeshiva and Poskim, if you have something to disclose medically or mentally, they'll tell you not to do it till the third or fourth date. So what exactly, what is the point of asking the rabbi something that Poskim are directing the subject themselves, the one on the shidduch itself, to not disclose till the third or fourth date? So there has to be some level of trusting people. There's a cheskas na'manas here. And that doesn't mean that it's not worth asking a few questions. And there are shilas about when we know things, if the father, the mother are a crook, if the kid had a major incident, was ever hospitalized, something significant, physical, mental, that deserves to be disclosed, that the other party is entitled to know before they fall in love, before they're smitten, they're entitled to know, then we should guide the family and we should direct them to think about when do you want to disclose? How are you going to disclose? Let's talk about that. How do you want me to answer that question? When someone says to me, can I put you down as a reference? If I know, and there are cases, a child had a childhood cancer, a child had a childhood you know, mental challenge that thank God they've treated, they've recovered, they're doing well. I'll say to them, how would you like me to address this aspect, this component? But when people will just put it on the list, right? Like, where do they live? What does the father do? Where do their siblings go to yeshiva? Who's married? By the way, what medicines are they on? Do you really think legally can we disclose confidence? Morally and ethically should we disclose confidence? Halachically should we disclose confidence? And moreover, whatever we're going to disclose, is it disqualifying? Would that actually change? And what does it say about you if that would be disqualifying? Yeah. So, I am always, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm too nice, but when I'm answering questions, I err on the side of yeah, a little bit more positive, I think, you know, it's the camp application, the camp recommendation form that, you know, when, when you have the Likert scale between zero yeah. and five, I think we tend to try to see the best in people. And I also would imagine that people who call up and ask the questions would imagine that we would, right? Like that, that's not something which should be a surprise. And I think it's only few and far in between where you're going to get real information from people who are just not speaking Lashon Hara and willing to slander somebody. I wonder the utility of all these questions generally, definitely from the people who are on the list, maybe from people who are not on the list, you get more of a fresh take. There's no allegiance. There's no sense of owing. What do you recommend from the other side to the person who does want to find that information? Not necessarily yet which questions to ask. We'll get to that in a second. But who are the people to reach out to that might be the most helpful in getting true and useful facts? That's, it's a great question. I do think that there is some value in conversations, particularly, you know, we're living in a time, let's say a boy, he's got 20 resumes, 20 profiles, and he's trying to choose between them. And there's a lot of similarities. Many of the girls that let's say this boy is dating fit a certain template. They went to the same seminary. They went to the same camp. They're on the same track. They're all going to be physical therapists, whatever. They're all on the same track. So what's going to differentiate? How do you know which one? So maybe there is some merit to having conversations. And I think there's value even from our perspective on what we can share, certainly things that are not confidential and also things that without judgment. So let's say he's looking for a really lebedic, outgoing, bubbly, effervescent personality. And she's very shy. She's an introvert. She's quiet. So maybe even then they would fall in love and discover and evolve and grow. But I can understand saying, look, 
I could tell you now that first date, you'll likely say, you know, this is not for me. So we can save both parties because introvert, extrovert, and so on and so forth. So I think there are some values and there are some conversations. There are some questions we can have where what is a person's trajectory or their vision or their hashkafa? What is their openness? What is their approach? And so on. There can be some value to conversations. This originally I was going to include in the article, but there wasn't enough space and I hadn't fully worked it out. And one day, maybe we'll work on it. But putting together a list of what we conclude are appropriate questions and who are we, we are the ones who take the phone calls. So that's why we're entitled to have an opinion. And not alone, we should speak to Shadchanim and Rebetzins and parents, put together a lot of normal heads and normal voices and put together a list of reasonable questions. And I would love to have Rabbonim and Shadchanim sign on and sign on and say, if you call me with these questions, I'm more than happy to entertain them and speak to you. If it's a question not on this list, save your breath, save your time. I'm not going to answer. And create a campaign of that list. And the list can be three or four or five questions. I don't know if you have this experience too. You're like on the phone and you're on question 22. And you're like, what's left for the date? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, the mom's not going on the date. So the mom needs all these answers uh, without the date. If I have gotten into philosophical conversations with people who ask questions because not only do they ask a question, they hear the answer, and then they tell me what their judgment of the answer and therefore of the person is. Correct. And then I say, well, no, I actually, I would disagree with the way you're understanding that. It's just awkward. And I think it's- Yeah, uh, the next thing you know, you're on a date because right. you're talking, you're debating Hashkafa and you're like, I'm happily married. You're happily yeah, married. Yeah, yeah. Why are we having this conversation right now? Exactly. So figuring out those great questions, I think would be helpful. Do you think that we're going to come to that point? And then those great questions are now going to be, so to speak, bavarned on the profile itself. So like everybody could save each other the time, take a look at the piece of paper, swipe right, swipe left to borrow a metaphor and then save everything, save all of this. That might make it, yeah, that could make it more efficient and it could be helpful. And I don't know that I'm smart enough or qualified enough to help guide this. But what's fascinating is it doesn't seem that the Amcha is actually deferring to Das Torah, Gedole Torah, Gedole psychologists, sociologists, mental health therapists in how this movement is going forward. So, for example, the proliferation of pictures. And looking at pictures, as far as I know, there are no Gedole Israel, no Rabbanim. There are countless quotes and references and stories of those who are rejecting it. So why are we letting the Shadchanim, who are telling, in some cases, parents, you got to hire a photographer, you got to do some Photoshop, you got to get makeup done, you got to this, you got to that. Why are we participating in that practice? If nobody agrees that it's positive or good, who's calling the shots? There are major quality Israel issues beyond just Shaduchim. That's like, who's calling the shots? And again, I'm not trying to take the power back to Rabbonim. We should call all the shots. We're the smartest. We're the most qualified. Das Torah. But let's put the brains together of mental health professionals, psychologists, sociologists, Shadchanim, men, women, rabbis, rabbitsons, and let's have some leadership, some vision. Let's give some direction. There is a campaign going on right now called Nix the Picks. I think 45 days in memory of the 45, and there's articles criticizing why you connecting this to Meron tragedy was one thing you have to do with the other. It's a reasonable pushback. But the movement was for 45 days, if you have child in Shaduchim, nix the pics. Make a statement. I don't want any resume that includes a picture. But there are people I admire and great people who will tell you and say publicly, pictures are terrible. Their kids are in Shaduchim. They're like, yeah, I got to see a picture. I don't want my girl going out with some zafta guy. I don't want my son going out with a girl who's not the dress size that I imagined for her. These are the, this is where we're at. This is what Eliezer went to go look for. That's what Avram sent Eliezer to look for. 
was dress size or a picture. I'm always amazed by that story and how the takeaway isn't so obvious that it's all about the behavior. It's all about a test, but it's a test of behavior. It's about going on the date and seeing the Midos and seeing how the person lives in the real world. Yeah, I'll and- add another thing, by the way, that didn't go into the article and is not Shiduchim in particular, but I think a lot of this inquiry, inquisition, reference check is a byproduct of the pressure today to have a very short dating career. You date a girl for a very short time. Again, different segments of the Orthodox community, different lengths of time, but increasingly a short amount of time. And so if you're not going to actually get to know someone through the courtship, you should try to get as much information you can in advance. Whereas as much as I agree, of course, we don't believe that the courtship should go on indefinitely. We know there's a lot of challenges to that, which is not our topic for today. So person has to have a reasonable amount of time, but get to know each other. And these things would arise. How many of these broken engagements, if you had dated a little bit longer, would you have discovered that about the other person or their family? If you would have just dated a little bit longer. So again, I'm not talking about the Hasidish world. I wrote that in the article too. Hasidish world has its own system. I'm not involved. I'm not familiar. I'm not an insider to it. And I have no comment on it. But outside of that world, maybe if there weren't such pressure that you've got to date for a very short period of time, there would be some margin and some room, some comfort to actually get to know people more in the courtship and not first discovered after you're engaged or married. Right. I come back to a point that you made before as well about sometimes you're surprised. You know, I've made shaduch. I've been involved in these types of situations where a person says, I saw a picture, I saw a particular fact, which is not an objective wrong or not something which is objectively bad, but it's not for me. I don't think I should date this person. And then they do. Magic happens. Somehow they're living wonderful, happy lives together. And what would have happened had we been so particular? So I noticed that one of maybe if any movement was created following your article. So there was some website that I keep seeing ads for about pictures, getting rid of pictures and the pictures, stop the pictures. To do with it. I know nothing about it. I saw there's like an email. People like an email address. Page ads with just an email address. Find that for more information. And honestly, it's probably, you know, I actually I shouldn't say it. it's probably not a big trick. You know, send that email and you get all the pictures. That, that would be totally wrong. But I imagine that this movement would probably be helping a lot of people. So let's move into the constructive. And let me ask you if you had to pick two or three great questions that you think would be worthwhile to share and would be worthwhile to get the answers to, what would they be? Let me ask you, what are your go-to questions? What are the ones that you hope they'll ask? And if they don't, you'll volunteer it. I know you're doing it. So I'll be honest, that would probably depend on the person who I'm being called about. I think each one of them probably has their feature, which is unique and singular. And they, you know, I'd love to talk about that. So I don't know if it would be articulated as a question. Maybe it would be something like you said. What would you love to tell me about this person that I might not otherwise know? Or what's their greatest feature? Okay. You know, that might be one version right. of it. That's great. I love that. What's their greatest quality or virtue? I like question about, do they have a simcha sachayim? Do they seem happy and positive? Right. There's another article that I have in my mind I haven't written about what are the questions that really determine a happy marriage? Like, do they leave the socks next to the hamper or in the hamper? You know, do they all the things that we know as Rabbanim or marriage counselors that make or break marriage, which usually are never, ever the things that are on a resume. The questions that were asked before Shiduchim are never the things that make or break marriage. What they are is, are they a mavater? Are they a person who's able to be forgiving and forgoing? Or do they always need to have things their way? Are they a control freak? Are they power hungry? Are they 
a person who's overly or highly critical? Are they condescending? Again, this is all the negative. So I would try to put it in the positive, right? Do they have the ability to let things go? Are they a positive and do they see the good? Do they genuinely live with a simcha sachayim and a happiness in life? Are they, here's something, which no judgment. Are they a meticulous planner or are they go with the flow? Are they introverted and shy? Do they communicate and share or are they more open the life of the party? I think there are some questions that there is some judgment attached to. Do you have the koach to be mevater? Are you a simcha sachayim? Right? There's hopefully a right answer to that. And there's some that there's no judgment. Introvert, extrovert. You know, do they draw energy by going out or by staying in? Do they, what are the things that marriages are made? Do they like long Shabbos meals or short Shabbos meals? Did they see affection growing up? And are they the type of person who will have verbal, physical affection? Or is there no affection? Because you and I know that's what marriages are made or broken. Can you imagine right. getting but a that, reference but that, call? But those become much harder to answer, right? Those become much harder for the objective observer, unless you're actually calling their mom. This is a harder thing to get done. You know what I found fascinating? I don't remember specifically, but I remember years ago, people used to joke about shit questions relating to the absurd. You know, tablecloth color and plastic versus not make socioeconomic judgments based on a person's behavior. It right. sounds like we've moved past that where it's not about that anymore, but it's so invasive as to the point of being inappropriate. And the expectation of answers to these questions just seems wrong. I'm trying to figure out, if, is that a good development or a bad development? Did it used to be more superficial and now it's just digging too deep and we got to sort of find the center? Or just, are we never going to get this right? Because ultimately, it's mama bear trying to do the best by their child. And unlike your courtship, where the people knew each other, and there was nemonis, as you said, there was sort of like a believability and a trustworthiness. And we know these people, we live in a global world, nobody knows anybody, and we need these intermediaries. Is there really a way to get this right? And that's really what I'm struggling with. Could we put together the minds and forget about the, whatever other pressures and industries that are surround us? Is there a way to stop interested people from protecting or at least wanting that sense of protection and asking questions, which, hey, maybe they'll get an answer to? I do think that we can improve things. I don't know if wholesale we're going to radically change things or we can turn back the clock, but I think we can improve things because I think that people need guidance. You know, another letter to the editor after the article pointed out that there are countless classes, lectures, series for boys in Shidduchim, girls in Shidduchim. But have you ever seen anything advertised for parents of kids in Shidduchim? Is anyone giving them guidance? What's reasonable, what's normal, what's respectful, what's appropriate? What is the Torah Hashkafa? Is their role I know, in parents? I know a great podcast and has a lot of questions about how to help and how to assist and how to cultivate those relationships from the outside. So you yeah. come up with an email address and start taking advertisements, full page advertisements. But you're right, we need more parents listening to this and other podcasts that address these kinds of questions. Because you're right, there is an instinct of a parent to helicopter in, to be as protective as we can be. That doesn't mean it's appropriate or correct. It doesn't mean that it's even in the best interest of our children. And that's where there's guidance, which is needed. And I think we're failing. But coming back to something else you just said, as I know we're running out of time, is that why don't we have more people making shidduchim among the people they know? What happened to the day where you know, you knew people, your spouse knew people, your family members knew people, you brainstormed about the people you knew, and you tried to put them together, not just because one's a man, one's a woman, let's put them together, but you actually thought about who they are, their qualities, their trajectory, their path in their life, and try to put them together. And I think if we had more amateur participation in making shiduchim, then we wouldn't need these inquiries and inquisitions as much, because there would be a level of trustworthiness. And that is an indictment on us, on us, the members of the community, 
to step up, to get involved, to give thought, to care enough to try to make the shiduchim. Now, I will say one final word about singles, once I'm offending people and getting myself in trouble. I love singles. I love all Jews. I love everyone, and I want to help in any way that I can. But singles, I'll tell you, again, when I got that phone call from Mrs. Feiner, and I said, I know you know me. I'm good friends with your son. I trust you, and you know this girl, and if you think it's good, great. I'm in. I was really easy to deal with. There was one conversation. I was in. I needed the phone number. It was a follow-up. We were good to go. Today, you know, my wife, much more involved. I'm involved in writing articles about Shiduchim. She's actually involved in Shiduchim. I'll ride her coattails, please God, for this and many other things to Shemayim. So she tells me that, you know, the joy or the satisfaction you used to have when a couple actually decided to get married. Now, that's the level of happiness you have when they agree to go out. Like the level of begging and following up and pursuing the guy, the girl, the resumes, the questions, the references, when they both get back to you and say, yeah, we'll do you a favor. We'll give it a shot. We'll go out. You're like, you're ready to to sponsor a kiddish because the two of them have agreed to go on one date. So I think there's a lot of, and again, I'm not minimizing for singles. It's challenging. It's complicated. When everyone is setting you up and they've wasted your time, they've wasted your money, they've wasted your hope and your dream of going out that night. I'm not minimizing. It's challenging. It's frustrating. The single two wants to do their due diligence and make sure they're not wasting their time. But I think there's a lot to go around in every direction. Rabbis, shadchanim, parents, and singles of ways that each of us can bring a new mindset and to refresh the system and to try to take something which has become overly complicated and maybe simplify it a little bit more to the way it was. And hopefully with that simplification, have more success. Okay, that was fantastic. You know, by the way, an equal opportunity offender always does well. You know, when it's everybody, you get everybody all at once, there's nobody who's going to be particularly mad. So Rabbi Goldberg, thank you so much for your time. This was really great. You know, you made it when even the Kichels are doing commentary on your articles. That's super. And this is hopefully not only the beginning of the conversation, but as you mentioned, the beginning of a movement and where people put heads together and start to say no to questions that are inappropriate and start to educate one phone call at a time. So I guess I wanted to end because this is the best way to end. No further questions. Thanks for joining us. And thank you to all who listen to the podcast. Hopefully we'll have future conversations. Please share with us if there's anybody else you'd like to hear from and anything else you'd like to discuss. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast so more parents learn about it and will grow and gain from it. And Ravisma, thank you for having me. It's been enlightening. I appreciate the opportunity to explore this. And as you alluded to at the beginning, that is the most gratifying part that hopefully the conversations continue. And I hope that you and I and others, our colleagues can partner on making some of these changes. Sounds great. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day. Thank you to our gracious hosts and guests this evening. Please email us at yuconnects at yu.edu to suggest future dating and relationship building topics and guests for your enjoyment. Candidate at yuconnects.com.